buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. Epics presents Unprotected Sets. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a call from an inmate at the Indiana State Prison. My name is Phil Chalmers, and I'm a serial killer profiler. How many murders are you responsible for? 36. 47 and 52. I found your sister's killer. I want to see him face to face. Listen to Where the Bodies Are Buried, a true crime podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, so we're sitting with Ian Asbury from The Cult, one of the most iconic bands and all-around great guy. We're going to get into the history of um, The Cult and Ian, and there's so much to go over. Ian, you were saying it only took you 11 minutes to get here. That's right. That's cool. So we're neighbors, (laughs) actually. I came by drone. We're neighbors, and we we actually uh, share so many people in common that we're both friendly with. So we got to hang out the other night, which was awesome, uh, with our buddy Norman Reedus, and got to catch up. I think the last time I sat with you was at the Rose Bar years ago. And um, we talked about a lot of spiritual stuff and mm. cool stuff. It was years ago. That was probably my favorite spot in New York ever, the Rose Bar. That's fantastic. Fantastic. So um, If you could get in. If you so. can get in, exactly. Yeah. Luckily, me and Nur are very yeah. close friends. So I always got in. That was cool. But um, I kind of want to take it back to the beginning, Ian, because there's so much to talk about. And I know that you grew up in London and then you moved to Canada. when Didn't you grow up in London. Right. Well, you grew, up, you grew up in England. You grew up in England. Uh, well, actually, I grew up in Glasgow. In Glasgow. And near Liverpool. So that's a... Di- that's a distinction. There's a definite boundary between Scotland and England. Okay, so and then, but you and at some point, I think you were 11. You moved to Canada. That's right? correct. And you have like deep Canadian roots, definitely, yes, right? Absolutely. And um, yeah, tell me about all those days because I know early on it was like Bowie, Morrison, Iggy, the New York Dolls, a lot of the stuff that you were into, a lot of stuff mm. I was into. Um, and and I I feel like there's so many um, you know so many connections from Ziggy Stardust was always someone that completely inspired me. My whole wall was this huge Mick Rock. Ziggy Stardust mm. picture. Um, but take me back to the beginning, because obviously growing up where you did and then moving to Canada and, and those were your early influences, you know, what made you sort of get the itch to play music? Was it, was it Bowie? Was it Ziggy Stardust? What, you know, what was it that sort of inspired you to get into it? Um, I got asked to join a band because the guys liked the way I looked. That's cool. They thought I had a dope haircut and I dressed sharp and they thought I'd be a good frontman for the band. Nobody had heard me sing. Um, other than that, I mean, I sang along with records and uh, consistently Bowie. I bought Life on Mars when I was 10, and he was always my North Star, still is. Um, but when I went and auditioned for this band, they were called the, uh, I think they were called the Stimulators. No, that was, Har- that was Harley. Um, that was a band from New York. Um, I forget the name of their band. They had a punk band and a lead singer had gone out and they, they asked me to sing. So the first thing we did was a Pistols. I think we, in the basement of a house, we did a Pistols song. They go, do you want to be the singer of the band? I'm like, sure. That was it. <laughs> and I, I heard, <laughs> I we read some songs and we, we actually rehearsed above a reggae shop for about six months. Amazing. I read somewhere that you actually used to even sell your own clothes. So there's a deep rooted yeah. 
fashion sensibility. We, we got talking about fashion the other Clothes, night and, yeah. and virtual modeling and where this whole crazy business is going. Yeah, I, was absolutely. Sh- I was actually showing you some virtual models that appear in like the Balenciaga campaign. Oh, it's phenomenal. Uh, it's crazy. And we, we're going to get into all that. But so yeah, even at a young age, you're actually like making your own clothes. So, making clothes. I yeah. grew up with, um, my mom had seven sisters and my dad had three. And so there was very heavy, uh, you know, feminine influence in everything, art, music, uh, fashion. And, you know, I had a haircut when I was in, you know, a kid. I had my hair cut by my aunties, like a little beetle haircut. And um, it just went on and got introduced to a lot of music that probably wouldn't have been introduced to had I not had these teenage babysitters, you know. And it, and it's so aunts. funny because I always say the look back then was almost equivocally as important as like the sound, the image was as important. And yeah. literally people, that's it, right? You got, they yeah, were clothes like, were a big deal. Yeah, we, we, liked your hair, people. we like your haircut, so join the band. Yeah, exactly. That was it. I mean, that's that was the uh, the social media of the day. It was like the street, and it was like eyes, and uh, you know, people checking each other out, and you know, shyly coming up to you and saying, "Hey, you like this music?" Yeah. You know, the guitar. If you saw a punk rocker, you'd know immediately. Could have a conversation. Didn't matter what their background was, you know, where they came from, their social status, ethnicity, sexual orientation. It didn't matter. It's about the music, and we all kind of came together as this outside a group, disparate group. And obviously things like Bowie and the Pistols were really um, connective in that. Yeah, and it's almost like, could Ziggy Stardust exist today, right? It's like, that's um, that's something I think about sometimes. Like, could some of those stars from that generation exist today? Like Ziggy was, at the time, it was so outlandish. Yeah. Um, and it was like, wow, this guy's like wearing makeup. And, it, you know, but, and I actually, it, I did my homework and I watched um, your first, I think it... Um, your first appearance with the cult, I think you had changed your name from that point from the Southern Death Cult to the cult. It was on the tube. And, yeah. it, and the first appearance kind of was reminiscent. Some, you wore the makeup a little bit. like yeah. It was like, right? You, the makeup I, was really based on um, uh, Plains Indians uh, makeup um, that I was fascinated with. I moved to Canada when I was 11 and became fascinated with indigenous culture. I think being an outsider, it was a strange thing, um, being a Northwestern, you know, obviously white-faced kid coming into school in Canada and it was so multicultural. And I was treated as an immigrant. didn't matter where I was, you know, that was like Anglo-looking. Yeah. Um, all my friends were from, like, my best friends were from, like, Jamaica, Turkey, um, Pakistani friends. Um, there was, and then it was the native kids. And we just kind of formed this clique outside of the regular, you know, high school, uh, grade school scene and... Um, the music was very important as well. It was always music, talking about music. Yeah. That seemed to be the, the, the common denominator. So um, I became fascinated in different cultures, you know, and that was going to Canada was really instrumental in that. And were the New York Dolls and all those bands, were they big in Canada? I don't even know. Well, that Sometimes those bands don't permeate the different Don cultures. Don Krishna's Rock Concert and uh, American Bandstand. And I used to avidly watch Soul Train. I grew up with Soul Train. My father was a massive Paul Robeson and Nat King Cole fan, so I grew up with that music as well in the house. And oh, um, cool. But Soul Train was really important to me. I used to try and copy the dance moves. I love that. You know, like, like 12, yeah. 13, that was it. I was obsessed with that. Yeah. But then it was Don Krishna's Rock Concert. I remember seeing the Do- New York Dolls and Don Krishna's Rock Concert. Yeah. Because I lived, we lived like 40, 50 miles from the U.S. border. Oh, right, right. So, so I grew you would up, go over. Like just over the border from New York yeah. State. So you would actually go to the live tapings of the show? No, no, no. I was too young. Oh, no, okay. I just watched on TV. Watch on TV. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It was a great show. I remember it back in the day. Yeah. 
Um, and then at some point, Saturday Night Special as well. Right, Saturday Night Special. I don't. Midnight I don't Special, whatever it's called. Yeah, I don't remember that, but I definitely remember seeing Don Kirsch. I think I saw Kiss on Don Kirsch's rock concert. Yeah, that sounds kid. about right. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point, obviously in 1981, Southern Death Cult, you formed that band and uh, you teamed up with Billy and the other guys in 83, I think, and eventually it became 83. the Cult. 83. Yeah, Southern um, Death Cult was its own. Its own thing. It was just its own. I mean, it, it could have been everything for me. I could have probably dined out on that for the rest of my life. Yeah, you know? yeah. After three years of that, it was just so notorious. I, I almost, I always felt that you almost um, invented a new genre of music because it was this sort of hybrid um psychedelic, alternative rock, rock and roll. So yeah. it was everything combined into one. It was what we could play. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, kraut rock, yeah. uh, um, you know, Joy Division, public image, bit of punk. Uh, so it was like new wave, post-punk. And then, um, you know, things like The Doors were very important. Uh, Adam and the Ants, early Ants, like Xerox period Ants. Yeah. Um, you know, things like The Birthday Party, Gun Club, um, you know, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, all those guys were very important influences and then the other music was slipping in like we were really into Burundi Burundi beats and, right um kind of introduced that through the ants and, I was uh, gonna say your makeup on yeah. that first video I watched today reminded me of like Adam and the Ants yeah yeah That's well funny. I mean that I really kind of like I said I got really influenced by um Native American culture and yeah. it was an affectation of you know I don't know I think being young you just, you're on tv so I think I'm going to be on TV, so I better make an impact. So right, right. I'm going to paint my, half my face white. <laughs> right. Your half's going to have three red stripes on it and yeah. wear feathers and, and like a red military jacket. And I thought I just wanted to make an impact and it was, uh, it was pretty powerful. It was cool. I never saw it before, to be honest. It was a yeah. really cool clip. Um, we played I, on some Death Cult played on the tube as well and Malcolm oh. McLaren was uh, one of the, the uh, I guess, the VJs. Oh, amazing. And he was asked, he said, what do you think of Southern Death Cult? And he says, that boy's a sexual threat. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> well, I want to jump to one of my favorite songs from that era, Nirvana by the cult. And I want to come back and talk about uh, Malcolm McLaren and the sexual threat and the history of where it all started. So uh, you're listening to uh, Lips LA Radio. I'm here with Ian Asbury and you're listening nice. to Nirvana by the cult. Well done, Scott. Hey, this is Anais Gallagher and you're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA Radio. So we, uh, we just listened to Nirvana. Um, by the cult, and I uh, wanted to jump back into it. You're talking about Malcolm McLaren, Ian, and yes. um, so you got to meet him. What was he all about? I didn't meet Malcolm McLaren until I think I briefly said hello to him on the show, and I was just blown away because he was he was a you know uh, a hero to me. And um, later I met him in the street when he was he did a collaboration with Supreme. It was about maybe 2006. I saw him on the street in New York. Uh, yeah, just after he'd done the collaboration. And I was actually wearing a T-shirt. It was the Keith Herring. Oh, right. Got right. a T-shirt, smoking a cigarette or a cigar. And actually that was banned because the Herring estate pulled it. But um, So I met McLaren on the street, got to say, you know, deeply admire you, respect you, and you've been a great influence on me. And, and I think he passed away a couple of weeks after yeah. that as well. Yeah, he did, yeah. And yeah. that's actually, the, those guys at Supreme are kind of brilliant, I have to say, that from using uh, like Morrissey to everything they do is pretty James, smart. It's James Jebbia. He's yeah. definitely a, a visionary in that way. He's, he, the way that he wove... Um, all these cultural influences into essentially what was originally a skateboard brand and took it to, it became like, you know, cultural radio station in many ways. They're, they're, what their drops, you know, were actually educational and informative for so many people and yeah. still are. It's, Absolutely. It was pretty incredible. You go to New York and you actually look and there's like, I don't know, sometimes that Supreme is dropping new stuff and there's a line for like hours long oh, down the street. crazy, yeah. And it, it reminds yeah. me of the days when people used to wait in line to see rock bands. You used to have to queue up to get tickets. That's what I like about exactly. um, what Trent did with the new Nine Inch Nails tour was he actually made people physically 
have to go turn up to buy a ticket. Exactly. If you wanted to see the show, you had to buy a ticket. Definitely. But there was a little bump for them as well. As well. I think they got like um, some music or something that was made it worthwhile standing in line. Plus you got this tactile thing in your hand. Because I used to take tickets and stick them on the wall. Yeah. So you have like, you know, Clash, Glasgow, Apollo. Right. Or the Ramones or whatever. And you'd have it stuck on the wall and you'd stare at that thing for weeks, if not months. And you'd just be like, and getting so excited about, it wasn't Count- like going on ticket fly and you just go. Counting down the days. <laughs> down, you, you turn up with it on your phone. Yeah. No, it's, it was amazing. Yeah. The tickets were a big deal. Man, it's such a it's such a crazy time how we have things that progress and change since then. But I also I wanted to touch base on one of my favorite records of all time, Love, obviously an electric. And um, at some point, you guys did the, both those records, super iconic, and you work with Rick Rubin, and it changed the sound of the band. Mm. Or you guys decided to change the sound of the band. Mm. So from kind kind of you know going from one sort of subgenre of music, Love to me, the, the band, the sound of the band had changed when you started to work with Rick. Was that sort of a conscious thing for you, or you just wanted to get into a heavier sound? I feel that at the time, because we were really came out of a live situation, it was performance-based, songwriting was something that was almost exotic and alien. It was something you just did. Yeah. But it wasn't something that we really, I don't think we'd really honed it, dialed it in. I don't think that really started to happen until I got to my 40s, really. Really? But it was all performance-based. So you're writing music really for a live situation. And I just felt that Love Album was incredibly textured and layered and cinematic and it's quite dense in places. And um, there was just a desire to strip it down to, to raw basics. And when I heard Cookie Puss in a club in Toronto, it was like 1985 or something, her Cookie Puss, Beastie Boys track, it's like so dope. And it's like, what is this? We should really be produced more like this with these kind of EQs. So we hit Rick up. I think we went to see him in like early 86. And I believe he's still in his dorm room at NYU. Maybe wrong. And he sat down and he showed us a VHS of... Uh, Blue Cheer, and he goes, more like this, you know, Summertime Blues, Blue Cheer. Yeah. It's more stripped back. I was thinking more like The Five and The Stooges and The Birthday Party and The Gun Club and more like raw performance-based bands. And, I mean, it, it's pretty raw record in, in, in you know, electric album because we recorded it twice. Was that, yeah, and I heard that. Was the recording process Blew a just, load of money doing it. Yeah, hundreds of thousands, <laughs> Richard sure. Branson's studio outside oh, right. of Oxford. And yeah. did you guys just get in the studio and hammer it out? Was it just live everything? Because it sounds like a live record. I don't a lot of the tracks were already kind of there because we'd already recorded it. But then Rick's initial pitch was like, I'll re-record two tracks and remix the rest. And everyone was like, yeah. But then we started doing backing tracks on everything else. And we were at it for like maybe six weeks. And the label came over with the management. And we're like, said, right, it's done, right? We're like, well... I kind of started re-recording it <laughs> and they were like, they just blew, said, no, wait, 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 you got to listen to it. So they heard him like, wow, that's, that's pretty sick. So, um, the energy at the time was incredible. We were on 8th street, electric lady studios. Yeah, I've been there a bunch. Yeah. Man, it was crazy. You know, just off 6th Ave and um, yeah. I ended up living down the street from there, but, um, it was an incredible time. It's dangerous. Washington square park. So much different There's now. There's a lot going on. Yeah. A lot of gunplay on the street, yeah. you know, occasionally you see muggins and guns would pop out every now and again and, Definitely nightlife was, you know, it's incredible. And I think lyrically you've always been inspired by New York. Correct me if I'm yeah, wrong. No, yeah, no, absolutely. I yeah. think you busted me there. It's, I think New York's such an incredible muse. There's so many layers to New York and I've had so many experiences there. Um, even on the last record I was talking, well, record like, like for last, I was talking about having a full breakdown on Lafayette Street. Yeah. Well, my I, when we were talking the other night, I told you one of my favorite, all-time favorite cult songs is Honey From A Knife. And That's we it. started talking yeah, yeah. about New York. 
And I actually listened to that song four times on the treadmill the other day because it's such a pumped up, like if you want to work out, if you want to get energized, if you want to play a show, <laughs> like that's the song to listen to. That's cool. I'm glad you connect uh, with it. It's, uh, I connect beyond words because I, I think it's one of my favorite songs you guys have done. So let's jump to Honey from a Knife and we're going to come back and talk about all things Ian Astenberry and the Cult in a few minutes. Hello, this is Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes and you're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA. Ian, you were telling me the story from Honey from a Knife because it actually is a pretty powerful story and we talked about it briefly the other night when we were hanging out. So mm. just touch base on it because I think it's sometimes people don't know lyrically like what goes behind a song what's what goes into a song and 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 what people are going through and I think that that song in particular it's such a energetic high-powered song but there's a, a darkness behind it too obviously yeah I mean at that time I was in a rough spot I just had uh, been diagnosed that my hip was destroyed from wear and tear I'd had several motorcycle wrecks I'd been run over when I was a kid wear and tear I was a big runner played a lot of sports and and performing on you know jumping off stages and all that so physically my body was was breaking down and um the demands of of i guess touring and making music and and kind of like an existential crisis of age and and you know so many things and feeling out of step with the culture and even though i you know cultural uh, i'm absorbed in, in in the culture um i just remember sitting in an apartment one day and i just for some reason I was feeling so numb and I just took a knife, to slashed my arm and really didn't think much of it and went to sleep. And the next day I got up and was just, my usual route was around Lafayette, uh, near, near Supreme, across from where Bowie used to live. I'd be there, there's a really cool little um, um, Pakistani joint. Uh, it's like all the cab drivers go there. I used to hang out there and eat. I know uh, exactly what it is because I, I, I basically- It's an incredible joint. I mean, yeah. there's only like six, three stools in there. Yeah. And I was running down the street and my friend kind of grabbed me and said, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just, I'm just getting some food. And just, you know, he said, but yeah, but what's going on? I said, he looked at my arm. He said, there's blood all in your arm. And I'm like, oh shit. You know, right, and, uh, he didn't even notice. So he took me to CVS and taped me up and um, cleaned me up. And um, it was a really beautiful moment because there was somebody there who could uh, talk me back into a place of uh, grounded cognition, you know, and uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's a choice you make. It, didn't even think about it. It was spontaneous. It happened. And, um, well, listen, you, you didn't brought, really have much of a support network. You brought a lot time. of joy into this world. So let's uh, be thankful that, uh, you know, you're here and, and doing great things. And, Thank and you. Uh, yeah. And I, and I want to say it's, I was reading, I'm always reading up on the artists that we're having here. And I noticed that you, you were talking about the rock and roll community Ian, and how sort of rock and roll didn't really embrace technology and where culture has gone the way mm. hip hop has done. Absolutely. Um, and, and I work a lot with hip hop, hip hop artists too. Yeah. So in talking about that a little bit, because I feel like obviously um, in almost every conversation, it's inevitable when I have like uh, guys in rock bands here that where it's going in culture, we talked about it for a moment the other night. And what do you think? I mean, in terms of technology, rock and roll, where it's mm. all headed, because obviously hip hop has been ahead of the game in that sense. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like we're a little bit behind if you want to talk about that community versus hip hop. I yeah. think some art, some artists perhaps are, you know, stuck in a certain, but there is a certain, you know, they, they park the bus, they get something good, get a formula going and then park the bus. But, you know, it's tried and tested that it's always, you've got to keep evolving unless you'll get it, the energy that you put into a project. Um, as soon as it's done, it's kind of dissipated. You yeah. Know, it's time for the next thing. And I've always been inquisitive. It was because of hip hop that we met Rick Rubin. Right. Um, so hip hop culture has always been something I've been fascinated with 
did a festival in 1989, 1990, where we had uh, Ice-T, Queen Latifah, Public Enemy, who didn't turn up, but um, mixed with like Iggy Pop and Soundgarden, Indigo Girls, the Cramps. Um, the idea was, cult- there was such great cultural connection between hip hop and rock and roll, especially with like being around Def Jam family. Yeah. You know, so kind of, it was in the DNA. Certainly I used to play, we used to play like, you know, NWA for used to come on stage, right. blow that through the PA, yeah. and I, which I thought was dope. And the audience were like, what's this? You know? <laughs> right. It was such incredible music. Um, they were expecting ACDC. And you yeah. With we did shows recently with um, Public Enemy. We did like three shows with Public Enemy. Oh, cool. Which was kind of dope That's a couple awesome. of years ago. And, um, but uh, there's always been a love affair with, with hip hop culture. And um, Who do you listen to hip hop wise? Are there artists now that used to? Um, and, and I guess I like the do- Cuddy record. I like Kids See, is it Kids See Ghosts? Yeah. I think that's a really dope record. The, the new album with Kanye. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. That's, that's an excellent, excellent record. And cool. It's kind of a rock record in some ways. There's quite a bit of guitar in it. Yeah. But I see that a lot of hip hop artists are bringing in real instrumentation. Like when we saw Kanye on uh, doing, doing Ghost Town on SNL. Mike Dean's playing guitar and yeah. really ripping it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I saw uh, Kendrick last year and uh, he had a band. He was off stage, yeah. but he had a band and it really enhanced what he was doing. And Definitely. The blend of uh, programmed, you know, tracks and, and live music is... Dope, so. You know, it's also very interesting. Mike Dean is a friend of mine, and he manages uh, my friend's son, who's like 14 and I producing. Think he's incredible. Yeah, Mike Dean is, is managing my friend's son, who's 14, and I believe yeah. producing a lot of hip hop records now. So the, yeah. y- these kids are literally 14, 15, sure. making records for these like established hip hop artists at that young. And a yeah. friend of mine who has a hip hop label, almost everyone that works at his company is like 15. So it's crazy how the youth is really... 15-year-old executives. It's crazy. They're like running, you know, they're running the music business now. No, so Mike Dean's a star. He's, yeah. he's incredible. Yeah, he's great. He's, the, he's, you know, he's the missing link in many ways. Yeah, he's great. That's funny. I, I always I always mention Mike Dean as, you know, to, to like hardcore rock individuals who just can't get their head around him saying, look, go check this out. Check out his production. Check out his EQs. Check out the arrangements, the choices, the sound choices. It's just incredible. I think he told me the Dirty, well, the dirty South was where he started his yeah. sort of, uh, production stuff. So. Well, I love DJ Screw, so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And you've been living in L.A. now since, I think, 89, right, Ian? Um, we first came to L.A. in 1984 okay. on the Day of the Olympics to do a show at Perkins Palace in Pasadena. Oh, cool. Say that really fast three times. <laughs> And I know that you have you play uh, what we consider uh, soccer, but football. You, you're bit, right. Yes. You, have a, you have a league going on. Yeah, I was. I kind of a bit of an. When I was a kid, I played a little bit for a couple of amateur teams, and up to about the age of sixteen. And um, then a little bit in the twenties, but in the thirties, I really started to play a lot of soccer in LA because it was a very good competitive league here, and a lot of you know. Uh, Europeans, South Americans, you know, uh, Central Americans, Hispanic, just an incredible blend of players. And um, a lot of rock stars. There was a few rock stars yeah. <laughs> who could give it a good run. I right. mean, when you're playing at a certain level, the guys, a couple of guys huff around the park a bit, right, you know, and right. stop and have a cigarette yeah. break and that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, like Steve Jones, for example, excellent footballer. Yeah, I heard Billy's that. an excellent footballer. Billy Duffy Definitely. is an excellent footballer. Yeah. Um, Mike Myers got and played in, in a game once that was interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, Every time he got on the ball, everyone was like, oh, behave. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what, what's, what's your take on LA? I mean, versus New York, because you lived in both cities. Do you have like a preference? I feel like your spirit is very New York, too. So. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I love the sidewalk, I love the street, I love being in it with people and being kind of anonymous and just observing. You know, and seeing uh, individuals who have really cultivated a look and, and am- 
uh, an energy around themselves. And it's great to be on the street and see that. In LA, you're probably more likely to check out somebody's car First, right, I mean, right, exactly. As you're judging everyone. Yeah. I meet people and they're like, what kind of car do you drive? I'm like, that's yeah. a very strange thing to ask me. And I that's quite a you. personal thing to ask. And if you say something that's maybe not as popular as the popular car, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, you know, the culture's right in your face. In, um, in New York, you can access it just by being on the street. Whereas in LA, you've got to drive a little bit. And, uh, a bit more isolating out here, right? Don't you feel? To a degree. Yeah. But um, I find that LA right now is in a renaissance. It's yeah. just, it's, it's exploded. And I love the cultural diversity in this city. And uh, you can, you can pretty much do anything on any given night and yeah. have an, an experience. Do you get out there and explore much? Or are you more homebody? At this I do point? and I don't. Yeah. I go through periods of where I'm a complete isolation in, in isolation and quite introspective and you know, a bit of a homebody at times. And then I'll go out then I'll, you know, kind of get like, it's time to go out and reconnect. Yeah. Cause we tour, I mean, the cult still tours. Um, yeah, you just got up a tour actually. It's talking yeah. about you, it was, it was you guys Bush and, and Stone, Stone Temple, Temple Pilots. Pilots. Yeah. yeah. Great so tour. It was, it was a dope tour. And when you get off the road, you're pretty exhausted. You're pretty yeah. beat, especially when done like 30 shows in seven weeks and been on a bus with a lot of dudes. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of dudes. How was that uh, tour? Was it, I mean- It was, it was intense. Members? I mean, the thing was, it was kind of disruptive because we were all playing at different times every day. Right. Oh, I didn't so know So they kind of mixed it up. You'd be going on at seven or you'd be going on at like 9.55. And so your whole body clock was off. I mean, sometimes you're playing a sh two shows in 17 hours. Wow. So, um, you know, back to back shows and then with a 750 mile drive and, you know, um, it was challenging in that way physically. So do you uh, fly, is most stuff driving now or do you drive. fly to drive? Okay, yeah. If you were to fly everywhere, you'd, it'd be a fortune, so. Yeah. It's expensive to tour now because the production costs. That's one thing for rock and roll, hip hop, is, you know, like you could turn up, hip hop artist, with your tracks, you know, laptop, That's good it. to go. Yeah, fly right? everywhere. Not rock and roll band? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got a whole production. <laughs> you know, it's got like there. eight cases for the drums. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know yeah. you're a drummer, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's just a lot, and then you gotta have the, all the moving parts to go with it, yeah. so it's. And back in the day, people needed like this crazy big stage show. So you needed to have like separate trucks yeah. just to carry all I know. that shit. You'd have trucks and buses and assistants and all kinds of stuff and um, not even be aware of what was going on. You just kind of wake up. And, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all changing. But I, I know that you also were um, doing, the, you were sort of releasing capsules of music a few years yeah. ago and it was more like EPs versus the traditional full length. And I, I, I was, I'm almost well, like... I always had this debate, does it even matter now to put up full lanes or a singles? A good it doesn't. Path? It doesn't matter, I right? think Kanye's established the the idea of a 27-minute album, seven tracks. It's yeah. a dope way to drop albums. I mean, that's that's a really sharp way of doing it. Definitely. It's dropping. I mean, if you've got something cooking in the seven tracks, drop it. Definitely. definitely. Otherwise, you leave it too long and it go, kind of goes off to boil and it may be not as relevant when it comes out. I think rock and roll bands can do exactly the same thing. There's no rules. I mean, when I came up with the capsule idea, it was 2011. Everyone was saying you should do another record, another album. Like the whole idea of being involved with a label and just didn't feel right. So thought, you know, two new tracks, a live track and a visual element. Right. And just drop it digitally. Definitely. And then maybe a, something tactile vinyl later. But the whole idea was to drop two new tracks every two, three months. And I was trying to get everyone behind it. Yeah. And everyone was like, we don't see it. Well, and now it's like common to do that. Now it's much more common. Yeah. But um, at the time it was, it was a little bit before, maybe like 2011, I think. Yeah. Now you have a lot of artists coming out that don't even put out full length records and they get well known just from singles. So it's a, But such that's a fine. Place. I mean, yeah. if the quality is there, absolutely. Why not? Yeah. But, definitely. Um, you know, the, I mean, we, we, 
got so much information coming out as that it's difficult to sit down and actually carve time out to listen to a, a record. When was the last time you sat down and put a record on, like lit a physical well, piece of, and sat there and listened to it? Luckily, when I moved to LA, I bought a record player. So yeah, I've got so a record player the, yeah, too. I never had one in New York. So I moved yeah. out here and then I was like, let me get into vinyl. So we're actually, we got a, a fun little thing I'm going to do with you with vinyl in a few minutes sitting next to me. But um, I want to play two of my favorite cult tracks, Little Ooh. Devil, Love Removal Machine, back to back. And I want to come back and hear from you a little bit if there is a little story between either one of them. And we'll be back in just a moment with Ian Astenberry from the cult. Hi, everybody. It's Gene Simmons. And you're not. You're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA. We're back with Ian Astenberry from the cult. We just listened to Love Removal Machine, Little Devil. So aside from the alcohol, are there any stories behind those songs? Because I love those, those songs. songs. I mean, it's just a blend of things that I was fascinated with, probably... Um, I was just pulling from so many different things, the beats, the, the energy of rock and roll, Stooges. Uh, you know, I kind of grew up in a military background, so Love Move Machine was one of the things about Love Move Machine was probably talking about some idea of a, an anti-war song in some ways. Yeah. But it was also like an anti, you know, somebody who's just an energy taker. Somebody's taking your energy. There's, uh, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of parasitical energy around. We're like young band that was rising fast and so many people wanted a piece of it. And um, they wanted a piece of you as well. And it was very difficult to tell who was sincere and who wasn't. So there was a kind of an, an awareness uh, building around of like, we had to be very protective. You know, um, we didn't have the skills of boundaries and stuff like that. You yeah. just kind of found out through trial and error. So it's probably something, you know, some of those things woven into it as well. Well, I love when you listen back on a lot of music now and some really stands the test of time. And those in particular, really, for me, I mean, it's so it's so funny. It's almost like no time has passed and they still sound so great because you can definitely listen to some bands and listen to records and it's like, oh, that works and that doesn't. But mm. love those songs sound amazing. I, I want to touch upon for one minute because I know that inspiration, you know, um, you got to, to play with the Doors for a period of time, there, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, just... I don't know. I can't. I don't even know what to say other than what what an honor, what a crazy yeah, experience. I watched some videos online the other day. Pretty incredible that you got to fill those shoes and you did it incredibly well. Thank you. Um, which is not an easy task, I would imagine. Given no, you know, it wasn't. It's was very challenging. Yeah, the magnitude of what that looks like. But um, tell me about that. Like, I know you were always a Doors fan, but then when they finally called and what I don't know if it Robbie Krieger called or no, whoever called, it was Danny Sugarman. Oh, Danny Sugarman. Okay. Danny Sugarman actually, when they were making the film, just before they were, when they were casting it asked me if I'd like to go out and have lunch with him. And Danny Sugarman, of course, was the author of No One Here Gets Out Alive and right. managed The Doors. He was the press officer when he was like 14, 15 years of age. And then managed the band through the 70s and the 80s. Um, and he said, you know, we, we met. And he said, you, you know, we should go and uh, meet Oliver, Oliver Stone. And I remember going out at night with Oliver Stone. There's quite a few cocktails involved. And yeah. uh, <laughs> there was a car crash at the end of it. But... Um, so that night spent with Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone was talking to me about Morrison and stuff. And we ended up talking about Native American culture and uh, it was much more kind of uh, connected on that. Uh, and he was trying to feel me out, you know. At the time they were speaking to like Michael Hutchins, I think. Oh, right, right. As a, you know, yeah. potential for, because they wanted somebody who could sing and perform and they were looking at me and I think I was like an arrogant kid at the time. I was like, oh yeah, I'll wait till somebody makes a film about me. It's just, <laughs> right. you know, totally out of my mind. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, you know, delusions of grandeur. But right. um, 
It was dope, but that was the beginning of the relationship with Danny. And the next thing, um, I got invited to a private dinner with uh, it was um, at Danny's house, and it was a uh, it was uh, Timothy Leary was there and a few other people. And I was kind of being interviewed for wow. the job, and that was in the late eighties. And then they asked me to do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the nineties when he got inducted, but they chose Eddie Vedder because they were really hot at the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, like 29 and irrelevant. Right, right. Uh, you know, we kind of had our go at it, and um, first go at it anyway. And, um, and then it kind of rolled by and there was, I was very close with Danny. I saw Danny often. And then one day Ray decided it's like, you know, we, we should do something because if not now, then when? Yeah. And they got offered this show, I think it was like Holly Davidson's 100th anniversary or something. Uh, oh, no, it's the Storytellers. Oh, right, right. Storytellers. Right. And uh, after that, they decided they wanted to do something with it. And originally John was involved and um, walked into rehearsal one day. It was Ray, Robbie, and John, and it was it was incredible. Yeah, it I mean, was, must the vibe there must have been just beyond, right? You're like, I was watching Ray do this, like, primal. keyboard solo. Yeah, it's crazy. It was so primal, and they, were such, they are still such incredible musicians. Yeah. Um, they were just at a certain level straight away. I mean, we came out of punk rock and post-punk and didn't really grow up, although I, I love jazz music, um, it never wasn't really a huge influence in the cult. Um, but with Ray and Robbie, you know, classical jazz, uh, Indian music, um, there were so many different layers and textures. And uh, so being a lot asked of me to kind of find my, find my ground in the, you know, in this all these different influences and the door, because the door's music is incredibly layered and textured and there's sub, sub, subtext and, you know, many rhythms and um, arrangements. And I became immersed in their world. Yeah. So then I was, he had me off going and listen to Coltrane, you know, like Alice Coltrane, you know, and stuff. Or, um, you know, um, just going away and listen to music. That's interesting uh, that they asked you to listen to jazz. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, a lot of it uh, was for that. because I mean, there's a lot of improvisation that happened with one played with, with Ray and Robbie. Yeah that wasn't, you know, most rock stuff I've done is pretty structured and you stay with the arrangement, but these guys would break off all the time. Yeah. It'd be like solo break off, you know. And so uh, have you ever seen the movie the Bird? Room. Sorry? Have you ever watched the movie Bird? No, I haven't, and I should. You should. So yeah. when, when I was a kid, my uncle was a jazz musician and I never understood really what he did because I was only 12. Right. He was in Charlie Parker's band. So, so, so that what movie, your uncle was? Played with Charlie yeah, Parker? Yeah, yeah. My uncle was a guy named Red Rodney. So that movie, my, there's a guy that plays my uncle in the movie. I remember driving him to meet Clint Eastwood years ago. I didn't know what it meant because mm. I was so young and I just moved to LA to like, you know, join a band and go to music school. And and I remember driving him around and he would say to me, you know, I would ask him about Charlie Parker and he would say, uh, you'd have to look in the history books for that one kid and not really talk to me about what it was wow. about. Because there was a lot of drug use and things like really? that involved and he didn't want to get into it. Well, when I watched the movie later on, I, I saw all this stuff about my <laughs> uncle that I didn't know about. He was in jail. Like I, he never told yeah. me about that stuff. I didn't know anything about it. Pretty interesting. But that's so interesting that those guys, yeah, that the reference was jazz because you can hear it in the music, but I didn't even know that that was something that would, they would ask you to go and study in a way. Yeah, they wanted me to really immerse myself in their influences, blues, jazz. Um, they weren't really rockers. They yeah. didn't really talk a lot about rock music. Yeah. They never really spoke about rock music. It was more they spoke more about jazz and blues consistently. Uh, although the performances and film. I, well, the performances and I, I watched you do with them, definitely you brought a rock element to yeah. it, which is great. But eventually I found that that started to it's a different aesthetic. Right. Um, performance aesthetic and gradually became more woven into their DNA. And that actually started to overtake me. 
and uh, where I was becoming more expanded as a performer, I was just accessing parts of myself that I was never accessed before, and that was incredible education. Yeah, it's amazing. And now that's kind of all I want to do is is be challenged and work in challenging environments and, and push myself and be uncomfortable, and you know, I'm much more ex- excited about those kind of recording situations. Yeah, is there a favorite sort of you know, time period of body of work that you've done? Like, cause I know you got into film too, that you really like, it stands out in your mind as this is sort of the body of work that I, I feel the strongest about, um, whether it's, you know, the cult or the doors or your film stuff. I mean, you've well, done so many things. All so. of it. I mean, everything from sudden death cult through there's, there's moments, there's definitely moments. Um, sometimes you can work for like a decade and you think what's going on. And then all of a sudden you come up with it, you just hit a new, a new space. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of getting into that now as, you know, which is, which is thrilling because to have something to be passionate about today is, you know, it gets me out of bed. And, well, um, I want to come back and talk about what uh, the future holds. And I want to play a song, uh, one of the songs that I think when the band sound started to evolve and change yet again, Star. So let's Star. jump to uh, Star from the cult and we'll come back and talk about 2019 and what's getting Ian out of bed. Thanks, yes, guys. Dash Radio. <laughs> what up? It's Haley Bobaley and you're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA. We're here with uh, Ian Asper from the cult. You're listening to Lips LA Radio and Ian. So I just want to talk about 2019. We, we cover a lot of ground and there's still so much more we could cover. Mm. Um, but what, what does get you out of bed in the morning now? What kind of inspires you? What do you got for 2019? What are you doing that's challenging you? Because I know you're always doing things that are challenging you. I know you just finished a tour yeah. and I'm sure you're going to do some more music and things like that coming up. That's it. It's starting to... Um, I've been working with Lucid Dreaming recently. Cool. Like consciously setting the intention of lucid dreaming. And I've been, I found, because I have really bad tinnitus, um, which is a constant ringing in the ears, especially left ear. So I was looking for these binary beats and I just came across a load of them on YouTube and then I came across these ones for lucid dreaming. So, you know, going to bed's quite exciting because I'm going to see what kind of, what's going to come up and try and document it. Yeah. So do you remember all your dreams? Some of it. Yeah. Some of it. I'm trying to get that in that flow. So that's something that's really inspiring me right now is lucid dreaming. I'm and sure I'll, that's going to inspire some new songs. Yeah. It's already yeah. starting to filter through. Yeah. Um, so there's music, but then again, you know, the, the visual arts are very important on uh, like looking at film. I'm writing a screenplay right now. Amazing. Well, I got a couple, but there's one I got to, fo- I got to focus on one. Actually, I had a meeting at Warner brothers a couple of years ago and they wanted me to do a, a synopsis for a film about what it was like between the ages of 19 and 23 growing up in the band. I was like, so boring. I didn't want to do it, but now I'm thinking maybe that was a good, how often do you get to go to the Warner Brothers lot and have a meeting about yeah. potentially doing something? Um, I think I, wasn't there a Morrissey movie about that time period? Yeah. I, the, uh, well, it's called um, England is mine or something like that. I saw it, but I, I felt and like Billy's in that. Right. Billy's right. characters in that. I saw it because I remember yeah. Billy's character was in yeah. it. I think I saw Billy at the premiere, but I, yeah, it yeah. didn't really touch base on the music aspect that much. No, I don't it's know. more about the relationships. The relationships it's more yeah. about relationships. Yeah. Um, I kind of want them more the music when I watch that film. Yeah, because I think that exactly. Kind of well, you know, I don't know where they got. They could actually have rights to music. I'm not yeah, sure they had rights yeah. to music, like the Hendrix film with no music. Right. You <laughs> so know? it's like it's, it's tough to do it yeah, without the music. Definitely, because then it's like, what is it really? Yeah. So but then also, you know, clothes get me out. The, and I'm terrible um, sneakers. Just it doesn't stop. Really? Wow! I didn't know it doesn't that. Doesn't stop. So rec- three thousand records, and then yeah. and then three thousand sneakers. Uh-huh. Yeah, the sneakers are they're having to be sold off right now, which is hard. Is it supreme? Same I never would have figured. What what kind of sneakers? I got all kinds into? of stuff. I mean, I got my first pair of Nikes in the mid seventies. Wow! You know, like uh, the waffle. 
first pair of waffles. Yeah. I used to run track in those. Oh. And it was like, everyone used to laugh at you because they're like, what's that? You know, they looked, they looked like space agey and just completely different. Everyone was wearing Adidas and stuff. And Nikes were just so, like very few people wore them. <clears throat> but in the orange box, just opening up, there's something, there's mag- something, yeah. something mystical about Nike and maybe the logo and the name. And so I've always kind of had Nikes and well, went ha- through Adidas phases too. But I have a connection at a few of those companies, so I think I'll oh, have good. to connect to it. After <laughs> the program, I <laughs> yes. should be getting into a real today. Yeah, I actually know this guy that um, runs a lot of the, the Kanye stuff um, with Adidas, and he told me what a massive business that is for them. Oh, it's, it's huge. Changed the game, But it's really. the culture. I mean, that's another thing is these, the, uh, the cross-pollination of everything. Yeah. I mean, it does all connect you know, shoes can start a conversation. Usually when you meet somebody, it's like, what's up? You look them in the eye and then you look down at the feet and go like, okay. Right, can right. continue? I feel like you asked me about my sneakers. They're common projects, but I feel like you, you might have asked me about mine. Yeah. Common projects make, you know, it's dope. I mean, I'm wearing Japanese undercover joints from 10, 15 years ago. Everyone goes to Converse and go, no, the undercover. <laughs> but a lot of younger heads maybe don't get it, but older heads are like, you know, you go sniff each other's, Backside. Yeah, what, yeah, what's the most you ever paid for a pair of sneakers? I ever? always got them. I always get, usually get them face value. Occasionally, if I miss a drop, I'll go. You know, I've jumped on StockX every now and again, so which what, is insane. I don't even know what that is, but is Stock that like two thousand dollars sneakers the, or something? It's the Wall Street of sneakers. Oh right, okay. So yeah. what? So is there an amount of money that you like? I never thought I'd pay this. But no, I'd no, 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 no. I mean, I'm lucky because I get gifted stuff. Cool. Um. I just got some acronym uh, Nikes Prestos that just came out and I got gifted those and that was pretty dope when you can, you know, occasionally you get a free pair of sneakers that, are, that you really, really want. Yeah. And you When's your, your birthday is in April? May 14th. May 14th. I knew it was April or May, so I know what to get you for your birthday. Okay. What sneakers? Sneakers, well. And clothes. I love clothes. I love everything that goes around the clothes. Which designers do you, are you really into? <sighs> My God. We can, that's um, a whole nother fashion um, conversation. Uh, we Rick can Owens. Yeah. Uh, I think Rick Owens is incredible. Um, yeah. Yoji, uh, Calm, uh, Craig Green. I love Craig Green. I've got some Hakama that he made, like Japanese, yeah. you know, samurai Hakama. Oh. Um, uh, you know, obviously street stuff. Wait, you can't really say streetwear. It's not streetwear anymore. It's 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 just clothing. Um, yeah. Supreme, Japanese brands, undercover, neighborhood, W Taps. Definitely. Used to wear Bait when it first came out. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Um, but also, you know, some vintage pieces that I've got, like, you're going through Eastern Europe and you find, like, a dope track jacket. Like, I've got one from a soccer team in Prague uh, that's an old 70s one that I love. That's cool. It's all worn out. So records and sneakers, that's what yeah, I need to get camouflage. I love camouflage. I'm a bit of an obsessive on camouflage as I well. Like I've got a massive camo collection. I love, like, discovering stuff about people that you never knew. Like, yeah, who would have known? I actually make my own bags. You make your own what? Yeah, bags. You make your own bags. Wow. Yeah. Can people buy these? Uh, they can when I put them in the stores again. Okay. You know, we we had them at Union in LA, um, some stuff. But That's we, very cool. Um, I'm just getting my it's called NDF? Together. Yeah, it's uh, New Divinity Fabrica. Okay, so when you put them in stores, people should go out and buy them, or can they buy them yes. now? Nowhere, because like right. <laughs> it's not out. Because trying to get put together, that is a whole other, it's a whole other world thing, yeah. of financing and structure and you know backing and, and business plans, and I'm terrible with business yeah. plans. I think a lot of musicians aren't great with that. We're great um, with the creative. I'm good at... You know, I can stand on a stage and sing. Yeah, um, pretty well, actually. It's all right. Yeah, uh, it's a living. Yeah, but um, I'm really passionate about art and clothes and culture and languages. I like to try and pick up languages, food, 
you know, it's always amazing to travel somewhere. And Do you have like, a favorite restaurant in LA? In LA, um, there's several. Um, Amy and I just went to Gwen, which we love. Oh yeah, that's right down the street. Yeah, uh, yeah we kind of boot around a few different places. Crossroads, we like Crossroads. Yeah. Um, Are you vegan or is that just because you... Well, yeah. doctor told me I should get back on red meat. I was actually vegetarian for several years and he oh. said that, you know, I needed, I needed iron in my diet again and other nutrients from obviously organic, ethically raised meat. I don't, I try not to eat a lot of meat. I've kind of gone off fish, just keep okay. reading the mercury reports. Right, right. <laughs> it's like you're going for that, you know, the tuna roll or whatever, and you're like, oh. Everything's bad for you. Pretty soon we'll just eat air. Of, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. What so, can we eat? We can nothing. Um, I went to Gwen. They pulled out like a box of knives. I could choose my own knife. That's incredible. I, I didn't know what to do. I was sort of like, okay. Well. But that's a real treat. Um, yeah, the food's beautiful. The food's incredible there. It's yeah. not like go there every night. Yeah, yeah. Could no, it's a local place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth the experience. Well, I'm excited for what 2019 has in store for you and the band. And I actually want to come out to one of your gigs soon because I've definitely cool. been to a lot of cold gigs because uh, we have many Thank mutual you. friends, including shout out to Billy too. And yes. sorry, you're not here, but love you too. And um, also um, want to do a little thing here with some vinyl with you. So thanks for, so, thanks so much for coming on the show, Ian. Absolutely, it's pleasure. It's been, been great to have you here. Fun. And uh, we're going to play one more track from the cult and we'll do our uh, vinyl thing. So I think we're going to jump to... Um, Let's see. What's your favorite cult track? Oh, come on. I know it's hard. It's like having 200 kids and you have to pick your best one. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, it depends what day you're going to catch me. I'd say something like Life is Greater Than Death or I like Saints Are Down off the the eponymous record. Um, Let's play Saints Are Down. I think that's a great one to end on. That's that's an intense song. Yeah. Saints Are Down by The Cult and we'll see you next week. You're listening to Lips LA Radio with Ian Astaberry. This is Lips LA on Dash Radio. Hi, I'm Jingle Jared. In my former occupation, I was the biggest jingle writer of all time. Now, I'm looking for a new job, speaking to every entrepreneur that I can find so I can find out what it's like to transition from one career to another. All of this expert advice has become the bedrock for a podcast I'm calling Occupational Therapy. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hey there. Hey, Dennis Quaid is here. That's right. And guess what? I have a podcast. It's called The Denaissance, and I think you should listen. I'm having some really cool conversations with some really interesting people like music legend Billy Ray Cyrus, housewife Beverly Hills, Garcelle Bouvet, and many, many more. Listen to The Denaissance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.